Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, the previous uh, request is really one that's done in humility when we're asking for the Lord's will uh, to be done. On the one hand, we are uh, asking that our will would be brought into conformity with the Lord's will, so it's understanding that uh, it's not about what we want so much, but it's about doing what God wants. And so it's making it so our desires fall in line with the Lord. Remember we talked about how we can go into a tailspin and think any desire we have is necessarily wrong. Uh, but it's truly just understanding which desires are consistent with the Lord's will and which ones aren't. And then wanting to bring them into conformity with Him. And also is that the Lord would continue to just build his kingdom, that, that it would go forward, uh, that God's work would be worked out in our lives, and, and that uh, we would see his glorious kingdom. Now, when we're thinking about these requests, we can see how give us this day our daily bread is tied to your will be done. Because once again, we're coming before our God in humility, recognizing that life is only found in him. Uh, we know that we're called to live a life honorable unto the Lord, to bring glory to his name. And so we also understand that the Lord will provide for us. And so again, this sets up a stage much like your will be done, where we can wonder, well, at what point are we relying on God? At what point are we relying on self? Uh, how do we uh, recognize how we live this out consistently for the Lord's glory? And so how do we know that we're depending on God uh, for his provision. So we'll see first God provides for his creation, and then we'll be reminded of how, we're, how the Lord testifies to his faithfulness. And so let's begin with provides for his creation. The Catechism wants us to understand that God provides for our physical needs, and it's important to understand this. Uh, because when we pray, your will be done, many times we can think of this as being more of a spiritual thing, more of an internal thing going on within us. And so we can think, well, that's a priority for the Christian life to have this internal thing working out. But, but you know, the physical stuff, God doesn't care about so much. And that's sort of uh, problematic thinking, isn't it? Because we're not recognizing who God really is and his sovereignty. God's created us. Uh, he knows what we need. Uh, so we can say generally he's created human beings. He knows what human beings need to exist. But we also think back to the formation of Jeremiah, and there is a, a personal creation that, that goes on uh, for each and every one of us, which is rather amazing to think about. The Lord knowing us individually, uh, forming us in the womb and making us who we are. Uh, so the Lord knows how we're wired, uh, what we desire, uh, what we need in our lives, and he's the one who provides for us. And, and we're called to affirm this. Now, one of the struggles we can have in terms of this 
uh, petition or this request is that it's a reminder that we rely on the Lord, right? We're relying on him for his provision. So when we look at this, we can just simply say, well, you know, in America and, and people who are Christian commentators of our culture will say, America, one of the great idols we have is self-reliance. And that's true. Uh, we can think that we rely on ourselves in such a way we don't need God. That's true. That, that can certainly be an idol. Uh, people can say that we live in a time where we don't really need to depend on God. I mean, if we really think about it, we can take out insurance for a variety of things that can go wrong in our lives. And so we can actually sort of hedge consequences of actions or acts of nature, acts of God, however the insurance may classify it. Now, when we hear that, we can kind of slouch in our seats and think, oh my goodness, you know, does this mean we don't do any planning? Does this mean that it's sinful to have insurance? Does it mean that it's, it's sinful to have retirement and these sorts of things? Does that mean it's inherently sinful? You see, the, the easy way to solve this, which some traditions do and some churches do, is say, well, don't have insurance. Don't do any investing. Don't do any planning. Don't do anything that would make you rely on self. And that's real easy because you can check the boxes, right? You can say, well, I'm living a righteous life, so I don't have these things. But nevertheless, part of this petition, which does make it a, a complicated, doesn't it? Is we're asking the Lord to provide for our daily needs. Now, uh, we, we can take this to the logical absurdity and say, well, if you go to the grocery store, you're sinning. Because you're, you're not allowing God to bring food to your table. And, and, you know, we can see Elijah, the angels ministered to him. Christ, the angels ministered to him. So it's sinful if we go to the grocery store or do any of these things. You see, we, we can go to an absurdity where we fail to understand that God uses means. And so what this request is fundamentally calling to our attention is that we have a wisdom of recognizing what means bring glory to God, what means within us are idolatrous. And we've talked about this before, that idols can actually be very good things. In the sense, I've got to be careful with that. Uh, idols in terms of what we can turn to can be honorable things, not necessarily Buddhas in our front yard or something like that. Uh, they're not necessarily in and of themselves sinful, where you look at it and say, oh, that's sinful that's righteous. You know, you look at a Buddha that you're bowing down to, that's clearly sinful. You think of Baal worship, clearly sinful. But these other things we can rely on can also be idolatrous things that we trust in. And so this request is asking us truly to have a clarity of vision of where am I relying on the Lord? Help me to use the means that you have set before me wisely. Help me to plan accordingly. And may I ultimately trust that you are a God who is gracious. One of the things we, we learn about the providence of God is that I think as we go through different seasons in life, we probably can think back to seasons of want, seasons of struggle, uh, seasons of I don't know how we're going to get through this time, and somehow you get through that time that the Lord provides through a variety of means and so that's what this request is reminding us. That in the good times, don't stand up and say, look at what my hands have done, which is where we have our tendency to our shame. 
And during bad times, don't just say, woe is me. Both times in this request, we're calling out to God. Grant me wisdom to know what to use, uh, what means you set before me, how to use these means for your honor and glory, times of want. Lord, grant me patience, provide for me in this time, here are my issues. And so the point of prayer and the point of what the Lord's Prayer is teaching us is that we learn to depend upon God in all of our circumstances, whether it's in terms of our spiritual life or in terms of our physical life. We see that God is the one who provides for us. And so the Lord is the one, as the Catechism wants us to understand, is that the Lord gives to all of us, provides for this whole creation. One of the things I went back to with this request is just skim through Job 38 to 41. And, and you think about the, the complaints that Job brings against God. Some of these complaints are rather valid. I mean, you, you can see in that that there's wicked, uh, disgusting, heinous people who do absolutely immoral things in our society. They seem to profit from it. Seem to do pretty well. You look at other people where it seems that they truly... Uh, as far as you can tell, are trying to live the Christian life to the honor and glory of God, and it seems like everything they touch turns to coal. And, and you don't know why. You don't understand it. And Job brings us out. And he says, hey, there's no real correlation, Lord. Uh, here I'm a guy who's been faithful, and look at my circumstances. And, you know, as I've said before, Barry Webb points out, Job's absolutely right and wrong at the same time. He's right in that he hasn't done anything to deserve his particular circumstances in the sense that here are the series of sins you've committed, Job. Therefore, these are the series of consequences that relate to those sins. But it's rather the Lord is teaching Job what? To rely on the Lord. And so when you read Job 38 to 41, and Job does a half-hearted repentance in there, the Lord goes through all the complications of this creation, everything that he watches, to the point where if, I mean, I know for myself, maybe you're not like that, but I think of myself, if you start listing this as a to-do list every single day, I mean, it almost gives you an ulcer because there's so many things I would drop throughout the day. So, so be very thankful I'm not God because the sun probably wouldn't rise at the right time. It wouldn't set at the right time and many ostriches would die. I mean, that's just... And it's not because I hate them or have anything against them. It's just I, I wouldn't be able to stay on top of it all. But that's the point of what God's making to Job. I take care of all these minute details, and yet you're going to complain to me? Do you understand who I am? Do you understand who you are? And that's what this request is fundamentally calling to our attention. God is God. He knows all the little details of this creation he knows what we need. And when we call upon him, prayer is not necessarily because God's absent-minded, but it's continually training our hearts, training our focus, and understanding these blessings from you, O Lord. Whatever reason, you have decided to bless the work of my hands. Times of want, Lord, you'll, you'll see me through it. I, I don't know how we're going to get through it, but somehow you will see us through it. And we will get through it, and we will live out the days that you've numbered for us. That's what this request is generally teaching us in terms of our self-reliance. 
So it's not about a, a series of simple to-dos or, or simple axioms where you just say, don't have insurance or have insurance, and these things are necessarily wrong and sinful. Sometimes they may be, sometimes they're not. But the reality is we need to consider these things with prayer, exercise wisdom and discernment in terms of what's right and honorable before the face of God, and not trust in these things. But to see that the Lord is the one who's ultimately the great provider and by his providence places us in this particular time in history. And so dealing then with the situation we have in Acts, as we want to focus more on this text, and we think about what's going on in this context in Acts 14. The setting here is actually from Acts 13. So we think of Luke-Acts. Luke would be the history of Christ, Christ's entrance into history, Acts is more, how does the Spirit go out into the world? What is the mission for the church? And the church is to take uh, the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So if you notice, it starts in the epicenter of, of Israel, goes out to less Israelite people, to less Israelite people, and ultimately explicitly uh, to the Gentiles. Acts 13 is sort of a, an important chapter in the book of Acts, because we, we move from the apostles happening upon opportunities, right? Um, so there's people that may have questions about the gospel. There may be meetings or maybe opportunities to meet with particular people at particular times, but these sort of come to the apostles. It's more of a defensive sort of, of uh, presentation of the gospel. Now we're getting at more of the offensive in the sense that they're becoming more deliberate in how do we take this gospel message and go out to the world. So Acts 13 is where you have that, that change, that change in focus of, okay, we, we've got to now set out some missionary journeys. We've got to figure out how to plant churches. And so that's where these chapters become very important in the book of Acts. So if you notice in Acts 13, 4 through 12, we have Cyprus, 13, verse 13 through 52, we have Pision, Antioch, Acts 14, verses 1 through 7, we have Iconium. In Acts 14, verse 8 through 20, we have Lystra. In 14, 21 through 28, we have Syria. And so now it's, we're taking this gospel to these particular places. And so we have this, this reaction of what's going on as Paul and Barnabas go out and they're taking the gospel in a deliberate way to a particular place. And they go out to Lystra. And as they're going out here, and the Holy Spirit has commissioned them to go and bring the gospel to preach. And so again, it's not that they're just saying, what's our strategy? And let's just make our strategy. But there is guidance and discernment from the Spirit, exercising wisdom, discerning the will of God to the best of our ability. Although in Acts, it's more explicit where the Spirit literally says, you're going here. Uh, which would be kind of nice if that continued uh, in this particular time uh, in terms of our lives. But as we mentioned last time, uh, the Lord wants us to be adults. He wants us to wrestle with his will uh, and to seek to honor him. But going on, we have Barnabas and Saul who are commissioned to go. And we have Paul then looking out in um, 14 verses 
8 through 9, he's preaching. He notices there's an individual who has crippled feet. He goes, he gives a command in a loud voice. Uh, so this isn't Paul kind of just shooting a look or, or Paul whispering. It's basically Paul's in the middle of preaching and all of a sudden he tells this man, you know, stand upright on your feet. And all of a sudden this man springs up and stands up on his feet. And so it's a rather dramatic, explicit miracle that, that they understand it comes from the apostle. And so when we look at this, well, why does this happen here? Well, you think of Moses going to Pharaoh. How are they going to know that you sent me? The Lord says, here's a series of miracles that will demonstrate that you come in my authority. So that's what we have with the uniqueness of the apostles. It's testifying to their authority as messengers of God. But as they do this, we find that uh, the people have their speculation. They don't assume that this is a true God of heaven who is providing, caring, and showing his, his nurture for this individual. So they assume that these are Greek gods. So I think Barnabas is Zeus. It's probably older. And then we have Paul, they assume, as, as Hermes, who would be the the one or the God who communicates the desires of the gods to the people. Uh, he's more than a prophet. He is a God, but not as elevated as Zeus. Well, the plot thickens. And we find that it's, it's not just that they think they're gods. All of a sudden now, the, the, this word gets out, and we have this priest in verse 13, who's a priest of, of Zeus, and he's walking down the road with garland and oxen. Is about to make a sacrifice to Zeus. So it, it's not just some abstracted god that he's worshiping. He's making a sacrifice to Barnabas. I mean, that, that's what's going on. And so you, you see this and you go, oh my goodness, what, what's going on? These, these people have completely missed the point of what Paul and Barnabas intended to communicate. And so we, we find that, that they place these men on a pedestal. Uh, they show up, and we have Paul reacting. And, and Paul reacts in, in a way that in our society might be a, a little dramatic, a, a little strange, uh, where we have Paul rushing out, tearing his garments. Uh, Paul and Barnabas both tear their garments, so they hear, they tear their garments, rush to the crowd, and call out. Now, in our society, if someone tears their garments, we're probably setting up for some dramatic cage match or some dramatic fight where that might be culturally acceptable but still kind of a little awkward. And to do this in the context of worship, I mean, you, you think about this, here they are in the context of the people, the priest is walking out, all of a sudden Paul and Barnabas tear their garments. I mean, this is rather dramatic. This, this is communicating in this culture, I am not pleased with what is happening right now, which is strange, isn't it? Because if they're really gods, they would be flattered that the people would offer sacrifices to them, that the people would place them on a pedestal. But Paul is not one who is doing this. What does he tell them? He says, we are men like you. So the, the crowd assumes Paul and Barnabas are an incarnation of their God. So basically, they're like Jesus Christ, you know, God taking on the flesh, standing in the midst of them. Because they, they assume the only one who can do this sort of extreme reality or this extreme miracle, this extreme healing that is instantaneous, 
is only someone who's a god. Not someone who's sent by the gods, but only the one who is a god. Now we have the Apostle Paul, and we're going to pick up on this more in the second point, but he points out to these individuals, who is God? Well, God is the one who provides rains, fruitful seasons, the joy of heart, as he mentions, this satisfying of your heart is sort of this, this fulfillment, or this uh, fulfillment, a fulfillment is not just like a, a joyfulness in a sense of drunkenness, sometimes we can think of it in, in scripture. That's not the intention, but it's joy in the sense of truly just having a provision where, where one is full enough. It's having a really good meal is sort of a way of communicating this, that you leave it and you say, you know, didn't really eat too much, didn't really leave hungry, food tasted great, that was just a really good meal. That's sort of the sense of this fullness where God leaves people. Uh, we have then uh, the satisfying, we're literally the filled of the full, and then we have this gladness where it's again that assurance of basically a shalom of God. Now, now the point I want to bring out right now is that we can think that miracle is the extreme provision. That, that's what really proves God is God, right? But the Apostle Paul is saying, look at all the things we take for granted. Do, do we really appreciate the fact the sun's shining right now? Do, do we consciously think about that? Uh, when, when there's rain, do we always consciously think about the Lord planning when that rain is going to fall? Maybe... If our livelihood depends on the rain, we may think about it more. Uh, but, but do we really think about that? Do we really think about when we have a good meal of saying, wow, God by his means has been so gracious to provide this food for us and, and to give me this fulfillment. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, here you are reacting to this miracle and for centuries and generations God has continually cared for this creation. And he gave no thought to it. But this is a true God that I serve. And so this is that reminder. God is the one who provides. Provides for this creation, even if we don't fully acknowledge it. So what about the Lord's faithfulness? These things are obviously tied together. But getting more in, more in tune with the faithfulness of God. The Catechism, in the conclusion, wants us to withdraw all of our trust from creatures. And again, this is really a request where we're saying, Lord, help me not to trust in my idols, right? I mean, that's really what we're saying. May I trust in you as a giver? May I not trust in my idols? And of course, we as Americans, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else, say, well, I don't have an altar. I don't have the terebinth trees, I don't have asherahs, I don't have bales in my front yard. Well, what do you mean that I give in to idolatry? Well, the catechism is trying to be very broad when it says not trust in creatures. What do we trust in? Well, I mean, we can trust in our clients. We can trust in our paychecks. We can trust in our bosses. We can trust in our careers. We can trust in our accomplishments. I mean, there's a variety of things we can trust in and say, these things will get me through the rest of my life. And the catechism, again, is not saying, quit your job, don't do any planning, uh, 
just be rude at work so you get fired or something along those lines. That's not the point. The point of the catechism is saying, be conscious that you are tempted to trust in these things. Have the humility to understand we can all trust in these things and call out to God. Lord, continue to provide. May I understand that it's not the creature that fundamentally sees to it that my needs are met, but you are the one who is providing through these means. That's what the catechism wants us to understand, to be conscious of what we can trust in and to understand that we are called to trust in the Lord and the Lord exclusively. And so we are tempted to trust in the things of this world, to trust in what our eyes can see and not the God of heaven. And so this request is a conscious reprogramming, a reorienting of our hearts and minds uh, to again say, Lord, thank you for your provision. Continue to provide for my daily needs. May I rest in you. And so we say, well then, how does this fundamentally work? Well, let's say we, we don't always do this as consistently as we ought because we are humans. We struggle. Uh, we may think about it now. Our consciences might get pricked a little bit. And then we go about our business. And so is the Lord still going to provide? Well, this is where I want to call our attention back to verse 17 again. That we have that assurance that the Lord is the one who provides. And he provides for the nations, as we find in verse 16 and 17, that he does these good things. And as he provides, it's testifying to this reality. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 verse 7 was a reminder for Israel that they, as they called out to God, as they uh, would go and reach out into God, the call was for the nations to take note of them. So when the Apostle Paul here mentions that he allows the nations to basically walk in their own ways, verse 16. It's not that God didn't leave an explicit testimony. So the, the purpose of Israel and its uniqueness was to really show the, the glory of heaven with the desire that the nations would, would come to Israel and say, who, who is this God? Well, what is this God that is so near to you that, that gives you his revelation? Tell us about this God. And so that, that was the intention what Israel was to be. Now we heard this morning from Hosea and the prophets give us record that Israel failed miserably in this. And so the, the Lord is the one who has allowed the nations to just sort of go about their business and go about their ways without really being conscious about who provides or maybe coming up with their own deities or their own gods or their own means or their own things they trust in. In fact, even in our day and age, we can find the same sort of thing, can't we? Uh, you have a hurricane or some sort of a tragedy that happens in nature, right? We say it's a natural disaster. And, and people say, well, this proves that there is no God. How can this God allow such a horrible thing to happen? It proves that God's not there. And it's one of those things where you, you sort of scratch your head and you say, well, what about the 360-some days you commuted to work absolutely safely? Sun came up, days were pretty uneventful. Uh, your life seemed pretty good. Uh, did you turn to God and say thank you for the provision of these very days? Well, no. When things go wrong, we say, see, there is no God. 
But what we fail to understand, and it's very important for us to remember this as humans, we severed that relationship, as I mentioned this morning. We broke that relationship in the fall. And when the Apostle Paul mentions in Acts 14, 16, he allows the nations to go their own way. God didn't have an obligation to see to it that there was stability. God didn't have an obligation to see to it that when they planted their seeds, that the circumstances were there, that they would have a harvest. God didn't have that obligation that they would have food provided for them. And here we have explicitly people who are absolutely clueless, ignorant, unappreciative of the reality that God does this. And yet the Lord still does it. And that's the point of Job 38 to 41. There's a lot of things I do throughout the day and, and throughout history you pay no attention to. You're clueless about. But yet I do it. Don't get thanked for it. Nobody acknowledges it. But yet I do it. Because the Lord is faithful. Notice that in verse 17, this, this gives us a whole other twist. The Lord gave a witness. His daily provision of life going smoothly and moving along testifies to the goodness of God. It testifies to the reality that God is faithful. And God is the one who does provide and cares for his creation, even as it's under a curse. And I don't know if I've shared this before, but I remember when I lived in the Forbidden State many years ago, and I met a friend we used to mountain bike before work. And it was just this day where, you know, I had a mechanical. It's probably me. But anyway, one of us had a mechanical. And we look out over this gorge. And the way the sun was hitting it that particular day, I just remember saying to him, if this is a cursed creation, can you imagine what heaven looks like? I mean, really, if this is how the Lord provides and cares for a cursed creation, imagine what heaven looks like. And that's what Paul is calling to our attention. We take so many things for granted in this world, in this creation. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look around. The Lord is the one who is gracious, cares for us, provides for us. The one who gives a, a demonstration, you know, as Calvin says, his signature on the creation. That here it is, when you look out at a tree, what do you think? Wow, that didn't just pop up there. God created that. You look at the sky, God created that. You look at the, the lakes and the water and say, wow, God by his providence made all this. You look at the animals and the complexity of the variety, etc., etc. You say there is proof that there is God. That's what the Apostle Paul's getting at. And so he's saying to this crowd, don't, don't worship us. We're, we're not the ones who provide for your needs. We're, we're merely messengers. We're, we're preaching the gospel about the resurrected Christ, the ultimate provision as to how that relationship is restored in God giving his son and conquering death itself. That is where life is truly found. And so again, these miracles, they're not testifying to Paul and Barnabas. They're testifying to the recreative power of God. It's that reminder that the Lord doesn't want us in a place where we are crippled. The Lord doesn't want us in a place where we are those who experience death. A place where as we get older and older, we experience more and more of the pains and suffering of this age. The Lord wants us in a place 
of glory. And it's not an unfulfilled desire. The Lord's bringing it about. That's what the Apostle Paul's bringing to these people. Now you would think, wow, you know, that's really a, a moving speech to really think about the glories of God and how these men can be placed upon such a high pedestal that they're going to sacrifice animals to them. And you think, man, what, what a thing that you could stand there and be worshipped by these people. What an incredible privilege and temptation. And yet Paul and Barnabas say, don't worship us. Don't look to us. Look to the true God. You think that in and of itself would be proof that they're messengers. Because any human being would wanna, who's fallen would want to stand up and say, oh, worship me, great. Yeah, I'll have some more oxen. Give me some more of that meat. That's great stuff. But that's not what they're doing. And so you would think, why are these men telling us about their God and telling us that our gods are false and telling us that their God is the one who provides for everything. Maybe, maybe we should listen more to this and understand it. But notice the tragedy of the human condition in verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. That Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't say to the false gods, but points out the absurdity of what they're actually doing in the grammar of the text. That they're making sacrifices to man, to the messenger, and not to the substance of the one who truly gives life. God himself, who has sent his Redeemer, his Son, to bring us into his rest and to bring about the true glorification of all that was promised. But what we learn is that when we look at ourselves, and I'm not saying again that we test the boundaries of God's grace or God's mercy or we don't be grateful because God's going to provide anyway. That's, that's not the point I, wanted, I want you to take from this. But I want you to truly meditate on the faithfulness of God and to understand that there's many things we take for granted in our day-to-day -day lives. Many things. We can drive home a lot of bad things could happen between here and home. We arrive home safely. The Lord is faithful. He protected us, right? And, and I'm not saying live life in fear that these bad things are going to happen. But it's to start thinking about and, and taking life more deliberately and saying, my goodness, God has been very faithful. There's, there's been a lot of things that could have happened in my life. God's been protecting. God's been protective. God's the one who has truly shown he's a shield and defender. How many times have I take this for granted? And yet the Lord is still faithful. This is part of what this request is inviting us to think about. The Lord is truly faithful in his provision. And so when we ask that question then, how do we know that God will certainly provide for our needs? We know that because the Apostle Paul tells us, in previous generations, with people who gave no acknowledgement to the true God of heaven, followed whatever they followed, and God allowed them to just do what they wanted to do, handed them over to what they desired, but he still provided them rain. He still provided them food. He still allowed them to have a life. He still allowed them to live, and not just to live, to squeak by, 
but to live to the fulfillment of fullness is what a, the, the, the language gets at, to, to have the satisfied belly, if you will. And, and I don't mean that in the bad sense, like Ecclesiastes, that's all man lives for, or as Paul speaks of, you know, their, their stomachs are their gods. But in, in the sense of, of truly, and in, in even in a good situation of having a banquet, enjoying the time, the fellowship with the friends around the table, the family around the table, and leaving with a full, satisfied belly. And that's what Paul says. God was faithful enough to do that. And so we, we have to have the confidence that God has historically been faithful. He's been faithful to those outside of his community. And he'll be faithful to us. And so the call is for us to truly acknowledge, to profess, to believe, to consciously live this out. The good things we have, by the grace of God, through whatever desire, to whatever means he's chosen to use, he's graciously provided. As he continues to protect us and provide for us, is by his graciousness, by his care. And so the fundamental thing that this request is reminding us is what differentiates us from those who are not in Christ. Those who are not in Christ do not thank God, do not have a consciousness of it. And yes, they may have a life of abundance for whatever reason. We'll, we'll never fully understand why the Lord does what he does, as Job expresses that frustration. But for the Christian, hopefully we understand, even though we don't do it perfectly, but that we understand that the Lord is our great provider, and to truly be thankful for his provision, that he is gracious, merciful, faithful, long-suffering, doesn't have to provide for us. And let us continually then put this request before his throne of grace. Provide for us our daily bread. Get us through today. You are the faithful God who will do this. May we continue to rely upon you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.